Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Let's turn our attention to the scriptures here, Ephesians chapter 1. I hope you brought a Bible with you this morning because we're going to be turning around looking at various passages today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, that's okay, because we have paperback Bibles for you. They are located underneath one of the chairs in front of you, and our passage is on page 568, page 568, Ephesians chapter 1. Um, I think probably most people would agree, as we consider the times in which we live, that things in a lot of ways are actually better than they used to be. I can say personally, I think I would much rather live today than 200 years ago or 500 years ago. Uh, Food is very accessible to us, more so than any other time. We haven't had a world war in a long, long time. Some report that violence and armed conflicts are down across the world. Sicknesses can be treated quickly and effectively and successfully. Uh, In many respects, it's really a good time to be alive. (laughs) In most cases, things are better. However, just because things are better outside in the world doesn't necessarily mean that things are better inside, in our hearts and in our souls. We've got many blessings, many comforts, many conveniences in this modern society, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people are filled with a sense of spiritual well-being. It doesn't mean that people have hope. There's a guy named Andrew Sullivan. He's a political commentary, and he addresses this. He says um, that we have a hard time explaining in our society how it is that things can be so much better in so many ways, and yet depression Drug abuse, despair, addiction, and loneliness can be on such the increase in so many people's lives. We live in this advanced liberal society, and yet people seem to be more confused than they've ever been before. And so Sullivan, he says this. He says, as we have slowly and surely attained more progress, we have lost something that undergirds all of it. Meaning, cohesion, and a different kind of happiness than just the satisfaction of all of our earthly desires. You might be better off today. You might have more money than you've ever had. You might be more comfortable than you've ever been in your life. But let me ask you, friends, do you have hope this morning? Is your heart filled with hope as you look to the future and as you look to the afterlife? Many of you have seen the movie Shawshank Redemption, It's a story about two friends, a guy named Andy, a guy named Red. They're in prison. Um, They've been in for many years. They're wondering if they're ever going to get out. Red has completely lost hope. And he says to Andy, you better not hope because hope is a dangerous thing because hope will disappoint you. And Andy responds to Red. He says, Red, hope is a good thing. Hope is maybe the best of things. And good things never die. Good things never die. So he's hanging on to this hope. And you know, that's an inspirational phrase. You know, it sounds good. Uh, and, and many of us look to those kinds of phrases for hope, like there's a silver lining in every cloud and you know, things will get better, just keep your chin up. Friends, I, I would tell you today that to find real hope, we need something more than just inspiring phrases. 
We need something more than just something that makes us feel good inside. We need something solid, something enduring, something substantial, something concrete, something historical, something eternal. And that's what it's offered to you and to me today and what we're celebrating, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's where you find hope. That's where you can find a hope that will not die, that will not be obstructed, that will not fade away, that is not flimsy, that is not shaky, a firm foundation. So Ephesians chapter 1 is going to draw a connection for us here between the resurrection of Jesus and hope. And um, what we're going to read here is just a few verses from this opening chapter. It's the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. This is a prayer. It's his prayer that's put in writing. <clears throat> and you'll see this connection between the two. We're not going to stay in this text or open up this text in great detail. This is going to be more of a topical sermon. I want, want to take us through a number of different passages to see what Paul says about the resurrection and how the resurrection can bring us hope. But let's begin here with Ephesians 1. If you're able to stand, please do so. And I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 in Ephesians 1. Here's what it says. The Apostle Paul writing, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith, Ephesians, in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Holy Spirit, would you please come and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things about the truth of your word that Jesus has risen from the dead. Help us, we pray. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So you'll see the connection here, I think, uh, between hope and the resurrection. Paul here mentions um, that he would like the Ephesians' eyes to be opened and that in verse 18 they would know what it is to hope in Jesus. But this is a hope that has a foundation, and that hope is built on the foundation, verse 19, of this immeasurable greatness of God's power, and that power is seen most specifically in the power that raised up Jesus from the dead, verse 20. So it all um, springs from this idea of what is the hope to which he's called you. Now, in the Bible, um, you need to understand that hope is not used in quite the same way that we often use the word hope, because very often when we talk about hope, it's more of a kind of an anxious wish, you know, it's like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, there's a 50% chance, and you know, so you just kind of hope, or I hope my team wins the NCAA championship game on, on Monday night. It's a hope, but it's an anxious hope, it's an uncertain hope, it's a hope that is covered with question marks. That's not the hope that is found in the New Testament. The hope of the New Testament is something that is certain, 
It's a hope that contains with it a sense of full assurance of the outcome of the thing hoped for. And the reason why there can be this connection between that kind of hope and the resurrection is because the resurrection is sure and certain. It is something that has happened in history. It's a historical fact. Two years ago on Easter, I kind of spent some time talking about why it is we can believe in the resurrection. But this is what Paul is doing here. He's saying there's a hope that can be built on something sure and foundational. And because of that, friends, you can have hope for your past, as you think about your past. You can have hope in the present, right now, in your daily life. And you can have hope for the future. And those are the three things we're going to be looking at today, looking at different texts of Scripture to show these three things. So first of all, let's consider this. Hope for your future. Uh, excuse me, hope, hope for your past. I jumped ahead too quickly. Hope for your past. Flip in your Bibles over to Romans 4, 24 to 25. That's on page 549 if you have one of the paperback Bibles. Romans 4, 24 and 25. I think you'll probably agree with me that um, as we look to our past, for some people, looking to our past is what empties our hearts of hope. Uh, for some of us, we, we look to our past and our, our memory of our lives is just filled with things that we said that we shouldn't have and things that we did that we shouldn't have and mistakes that we have made and opportunities that have been squandered. We look back and we don't see a whole lot to be very proud of and we're filled with regret, we're filled with shame, we're filled with guilt. Our secular society would tell us something like this. In secular society, the, the, the kind of the the assumption is that the reason why we feel so guilty is actually because of religion. It's religion's fault. So a lot of secular writers and thinkers will say, you know, what we need to do is get rid of religion. If we can get rid of religion, then we won't feel guilty anymore. You know, religion is what tells us, here's all these things you're supposed to do, and if you don't do them, God's going to be angry at you. And people live under the fear of God and under their uh, shame of not doing and fulfilling all these commands. Let's get rid of that and we won't have guilt and shame anymore. But here's the problem. Our society has been very secular for quite a while now and guilt still persists in the hearts and minds of people. The guilt problem is not going away. The shame problem is not going away. There's a think tank in the University of Virginia, a guy named Wilford McClay. I have no idea whether this guy's a believer or not, but uh, he, wrote, <clears throat> he wrote this. He says, the stupendous achievements of the West in improving the material conditions of human life are in danger of being countervailed and even negated by a growing burden of guilt that poisons our social relations and hinders our efforts to live happy and harmonious lives. Even if you remove religion from society, it doesn't help remove the guilt problem because we all have this instinctive knowledge that we have displeased our creator. And this is a problem not just for the things we have done, it's also a problem for the things that we haven't done. It's the things that we should have said but didn't. It's the guilt we feel for the 
uh, the people we should have pursued, but we didn't. The difficult situations we should have entered into, but we didn't. We looked the other way. These are sins of neglect that bring guilt to us. And we live in a world in which there's a lot of talk about social justice, and rightly or wrongly, what that can do is even increase our guilt because we're always mindful of all the things we're supposed to be doing, but we're not. <laughs> all the problems we're supposed to be correcting that we're unable to. And we find ourselves filled with shame and guilt. Now, the Bible does say um, that we are guilty before God, not just for the things we do, but the things we don't do. So, for instance, you know, it says in Romans, we... Uh, that all have sinned, okay, active sins against God, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's not just the things we've done, it's the things we haven't done. And even somebody who's not religious, not a Christian, not a God-fearing person knows I've not been the person I should have been. I'm less than I'm supposed to be. And in fact, I can't even live up to the own standards I set up for myself, much less God's standards. And so, when you think of it this way, this is what causes people to lose hope. I, I'm a morally deficient person. But friends, there's hope in the resurrection of Jesus to address this issue. So, look at the very end of Romans chapter 4, 24 and 25. It says this, <clears throat> that it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Okay, so there's two things here. First of all, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. That's what we talked about, thought about Friday night when we were here at our Good Friday service. <laughs> Jesus was delivered up. The Father delivered him to the cross. And Jesus was obedient to the point of death. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He shed blood for our redemption. That's what the first part of verse 25 is saying. He was delivered up for our trespasses, our sins, all the ways in which we have disobeyed God and failed to do what God has required us to do. But friends, this might shock you, maybe you haven't really thought of this. If the story ended there, if it was only Jesus going to the cross, shedding his blood and dying, if it just ended there, you would not be forgiven for your sins. You would still be in a hopeless condition morally before God. Because what was needed was Jesus' resurrection. That's what completed the transaction, so to speak. And Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Your sins would not be forgiven apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what verse 25 tells us is that Jesus was raised up, what? For our justification. What a wonderful word that is. Do you know what that word means? It's one of the most important words to understand as a Christian, to be justified. I would say that's one thing that every single person wants. In our hearts, what we want is to be justified before God. We want God to say, you're okay. 
in a very simple way. We want God to say, you're not guilty. And there's only one way that's going to happen. And that is if you believe in a Savior who was delivered over for your sins, but also raised up from the dead for your justification. Here's a definition. Justification is an act of God whereby he declares you to be not guilty before his law. And it's not because of anything that you do. It's not because of your morality. It's not because of your religion. It's not because of your efforts. Because no one will be justified by works of the law, the scripture says. It has nothing to do with what you do. It's something received by faith. And if your faith is on this risen Savior from the dead, the declaration of the Word of God is that God justifies you. He says you're, you're not guilty. I mean, think of that. You know you are guilty. And I know I'm guilty in the way I've lived my life and the things I've done and the things I haven't done. We're all guilty. But by placing faith in Jesus, the Father will declare that you're not guilty even though you are. It's the mystery of the gospel. It's a guilt that's removed in the delivering up of Jesus for our sins and accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They're both necessary. By way of illustration, let's say you go to a store and you buy something. Maybe this has happened to you before. You buy something, you put it in your little sack, and, and you're walking out, and you get to the doors, and you're walking out the door, and then you hear that little beeping sound as you're walking out the door. And so you stop, and a sales associate comes and says, let me look in your bag and see what you got. And they say that you, you, you've, you've got these things in your bag, and they say, um, did you buy these things? And they're wondering whether you have, because the, the, the machine beeped. So what do you do? You pull out the receipt. That's exactly right. You pull out the receipt, and you say, here it is. I have purchased these things. The store person looks at that and says, okay, you're free to go. The receipt proves that you purchased the things that you bought. And the resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus has purchased you. The resurrection secures it, makes it demonstrable to the whole universe, and you are now free, free of your sin, free of your shame, free of your guilt. This is the hope of Easter, friends. Turn and trust in Jesus for all of your past sins, all of your past shame and guilt, and the promise is that there will be no more guilt and no more shame for you. There's hope for your past. But secondly, friends, there's hope for the present as well, for the way you live right now in your current situation. So for this, let's go over to Colossians 3. Uh, if you've got a paperback Bible, page 572. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, page 572 in the paperback Bibles. Here's the problem for a lot of people, Christians included. Well, Christians especially, who know that they're forgiven of their sins, they rejoice that they're, they're forgiven, but, but in the present, right now, as we live our daily lives, there's a constant struggle. And that's a struggle with the sin that remains in our hearts. We know there's impurity in there, there's jealousy, there's anger, there's fear, there's lust, there's gossip, there's idolatry. 
We find ourselves doing the same sins over and over again, blowing up, yelling at our wife, our husband, our kids. We're so discouraged. We know that there are sins that we're supposed to deal with and we're supposed to be improving and we can't seem to improve. There's no progress. And we ask ourselves, can I ever change? Can I ever be different? And sometimes that can really drain people of hope. They, we just feel hopeless. Now, there's some, there's some wrong ways to deal with this, some wrong ways to deal with your sinful struggles uh, in the present. One is just to kind of beat yourself up about it. That's what a lot of us do. We just feel really guilty. We pity ourselves. It's so much harder for me than for others. You obsess about how bad you are. You feel like if you just, the more guilty you feel, maybe the more likely it is that God will forgive you. <clears throat> you know what that is? That's trying to atone for your own sins. That, that's really what you're doing. This is the wrong way to deal with it. To, to deal with your struggles that way is to forget everything I just told you in point one of this sermon. You're justified, you're not guilty. So you don't need to feel guilty. It's not going to make you more forgiven to feel worse about it. Now, of course, there's a sense in which we should all feel bad about our sin, but we shouldn't remain there. We shouldn't stay there, and a lot of us do that. We just beat ourselves up and think somehow that's going to make us acceptable before God. What others of us do is we just say, well, i got to try harder. i just got to do more. Uh, i got to just say no. I'm going to just say no. I mean, I'm going to get, this time I'm getting serious about it, we say. <laughs> After all of our repeated failures, it's going to be different this time. And we just say, yeah, you know, we just kind of gird ourselves up and, and just, you know, this is going to be it. The problem with that is it doesn't <clears throat> address the heart problem. And that's what this is all about. True change has to do with the condition of our heart and to just say no and to just try harder it doesn't really get to the heart and so there's a better way and Paul gives it to us here in Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2 let me read this <clears throat> it says if then you have been raised with Christ seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your mind on things that are above. What is above? What, what, what is Paul talking about? We'll kind of go backwards here from verse 2 to verse 1. Set your mind on things above. What's above? Well, Christ is above. It's where Christ is. Well, why is Christ above? Why, why is he up there at the right hand of the Father? It's because he's been raised up. On Easter morning, he's been resurrected, so he has ascended and is at the right hand of the Father. So set your mind on a Christ who has been raised from the dead, but there's one more thing. Who is there with Christ raised from the dead? You are. If then you have been raised with Christ. Think of that. What Paul is saying is that in some sense, when Jesus was raised from the dead, so were you. Now, wait a minute, you think, I haven't died yet, I'm still alive. How can I be raised from the dead when I haven't died? Well, spiritually speaking, you have died. You were born into this world dead in your transgressions and sins. What Paul is telling us is that when you become a Christian, there's a, it's a spiritual resurrection. 
that you're a new creation in Christ. There's a bodily resurrection coming later. We'll talk about that in a moment. That's not what Paul's talking about here. It's a spiritual resurrection. There's in your heart, in your soul, in your spirit, there's been something magnificent and miraculous has happened if you're a Christian. And so Paul says it here in Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is before your earthly death. You're seated with Christ. You're there with him in some sense. I know it's kind of hard to understand. It seems abstract, maybe even a little strange, but it's what the scriptures are telling us spiritually you have been raised up. Now, how does this relate then to the struggle we have with our sins? What's the connection? Well, it's like this. Do you know why it is that you sin? It's because you want to. That's why. (laughs) You want to sin. Your heart wants to sin. My heart wants to sin. Ultimately, that's why we do the things that we do, because we want to. And our desires are what lead us to do the things that we do. So the way to avoid sin is to get to the point where you don't want to. (laughs) You've got to, there's got to be some kind of change in the heart so that what your heart desires is something more than doing that sinful thing that you have been struggling with. You can't just displace a desire from your heart without replacing it with something that is better. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying set your mind on something else. Fix your mind on something greater and your heart will begin to change. And those desires for sin will begin to get pushed aside and taking their place will be this magnificent beholding of the glory of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that's, that's where the battle has to take place. That's why Paul says, since then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above and set your minds on those things. Think about those things. Meditate on those things. Tim Keller says it like this. You can't remove the heart's inordinate affections for power, approval, comfort, and control without showing the heart a greater, more desirable and beautiful object. And that's Jesus himself. Only then will your sin lose its attractive power. Jesus has to be more attractive to you than your sin is. I mean, I think you know what it's, what it's like. You, you've been there. You, you, your mind wanders to a happy memory. You know, you think about a great time with your family Maybe you you think back to your childhood, some sweet memory. You think about uh, a vacation that you had. It was the perfect vacation. Or you think about that time when you won the athletic competition and people were praising you and you got the trophy and you won the championship. In your mind, it goes there. And you just think about it. And, you know, you just, a smile comes to your lips and you feel your heart beginning to warm based on what you're thinking about. It's a happy memory of something that happened in the past. Your heart responds. What Paul says here is, don't think about past events like that. Think of a present reality. (laughs) 
that you, Christian, have been raised up spiritually with Jesus Christ, and there he is reigning over the universe in all of his glory and majesty, overcoming all of your most formidable enemies. And he's there with you at his side. Think about that. Meditate on that. And don't tell me that you can't meditate on something because we all meditate on things. When something really bugs you and you're really irritated, you meditate on it. When someone offends you, you meditate on it. You think about it. You turn it over in your mind over and over and over again. I know you do that because I do that. Well, how about turning over and over and over in your mind things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Show that to your heart and your heart will respond. Now, I'm not saying that fixes all the problems and you're never going to sin again. I'm just saying that's the tool, that's the weapon to use in your battle in seeking to change in the present. <clears throat> Last thing, one more thing. <clears throat> There's also hope for our future. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's turn over there. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 21. It's on page 560 of your paperback Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 21. We might just ask this question. It's kind of a philosophical question, but something we're thinking about. Where, where, is, where is all of this headed? This life, humanity, civilization. Where's it all going? Where, where are we headed? I mean, that whatever it is, however it is you answer that question is going to have a lot to do with your sense of hope. Right now in, in the present, there's an atheist named Bertrand Russell, and this captures, I think, a view of a lot of people today. He just says, man is a product of a collection of accidental atoms. No heroism can preserve life beyond the grave. All human genius one day is destined for extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And so the only result from it all is that we would build our lives in, on unyielding despair. That's what Russell says. That's really the only way to live in a world like this. No supernatural, no afterlife, no God. If that's the way you think, you have one option for what you build your life on, unyielding despair. No hope, no hope. It all ends in death. That means everything's meaningless. If everything's meaningless, that means there's no hope. I mean, think of people who talk about progress. <clears throat> Humanity is progressing, as I've been kind of showing you with some of these quotes. We're progressing. We're moving forward. Moving forward toward, toward what? Where are we going? The secular worldview, apart from God, says we're all progressing and moving forward to complete oblivion. I mean, what kind of progress is that? <laughs> it's all going to end in the death of the universe. Is it any wonder then, if people are thinking this way and told to think this way, that everybody's hearts are filled with depression and loneliness and despair and addiction? But here's what we're told in 1 Corinthians 15. Look at verses 20 to 21. There is hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as we look to our future. Because Paul says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, 
by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Here's what Paul is saying here. He's talking about those who have fallen asleep. That's just a way of saying they've died, they're dead. People have died, but the good news is that Christ has been raised from the dead and he is, it says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's a sense in which Jesus fell asleep. He died, right? He died on the cross, but he was raised from the dead as the first fruits. That's an agricultural term for the very first bundle of harvest that a farmer would bring home. But the, the term first fruits implies that it's the first of many. There's other bundles, there's other fruits coming. We're gonna go back out into the fields and we're gonna gather a whole lot more of the harvest and we're gonna bring a whole bunch of stuff in that we're gonna be able to enjoy. And what this passage is telling us is that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, who have died, but the implication is there's many more resurrections to come. And those resurrections are promised to all who have placed faith in Jesus as Savior. Death is not the end. We don't despair because Jesus is risen from the dead. It's a blessing enjoyed not just by him, but by all who look to him in faith. And Philippians tells us here's where it's going to end, so to speak. It's actually the, the start of a new beginning, but here's where we're going. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his. <laughs> So it's not only your soul and your spirit being raised up in a spiritual resurrection, it's the promise of a bodily resurrection for you and a resurrection that will be in many ways exactly like the resurrection of our Savior. The Easter hope that we have today, friends, is not the death of the universe, but the renewal of the universe, <laughs> a renewal of the entire cosmos. A renewal not just of souls and spirits, but of bodies and trees and lengths, uh, lakes and the entire created order that God has made. That's a wonderful hope. I mean, we, we have a bright future as Christians. We have much to be hopeful about, excited about, thrilled about, excited about as we look to our future, even as we consider a world that is deteriorating in many ways the resurrection of the body is promised to all of us. There's another philosopher, a guy named Luke Ferry. And he's written this book that gives, it gives a history of all these different philosophical views, going all the way back to the ancient Greeks and going all the way forward to postmodernism. And in this book, he, he just examines each one of them, kind of gives an overview of, of what they believe. And this guy himself, he says in the book, quite plainly, he's not a Christian. And yet, he says this, I grant you that among the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compete with Christianity. Provided, that is, that you are a believer. Provided that you're a believer. Are you a believer? Are you a believer? Here's what Jesus said to Martha. John chapter 11, Lazarus has died. Jesus is speaking to Lazarus' sister, Martha. Martha's overcome by grief and sadness because of the death of her brother. And Jesus speaks to her personally and says, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
do you believe this? That's the challenge that I present to you, friends, on Easter morning. Do you believe this? If you don't believe this, you don't have hope. You might think you do, but you don't. (laughs) The only true, lasting, concrete, enduring, and solid hope is found in this declaration of Jesus risen from the dead. You can believe in him today. You can turn to him in prayer. You don't have to make a big deal out of it. Just in your heart, you can just say, I have failed you, Lord. I have sinned against you. I acknowledge it. I want to turn away from my sins. I want to leave them behind. I am sorry for the ways I've offended you, God. I'm sorry for the things I've done and the things I haven't done. Jesus, save me. Say that to him. And he will. And you will know the hope to which he has called you, the immeasurable greatness of his power that was worked in Christ when he was raised from the dead. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of Easter, the hope of your resurrection. Thank you for a risen Savior that can help us walk through a hard and difficult world with hope not only for our past, but hope in our present and hope for the future as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.